Emergency podcast season is back. We got a big headline that dropped on Monday morning, and that's that the NCAA is taking its tournament out of 13 locations across the country for 2021, and instead it's going to host the whole damn thing in one general geographic region that's expected to be Indianapolis. So what do we know? What did not get answered on Monday by NCAA officials? What does Paris think that the NCAA should do come March? And why am I so steadfast on pushing this thing back to mid-April at the earliest? We got it all for you right now. Let's do it. Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Monday, November 16th, 2020. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me and some fairly big breaking news earlier today. The NCAA has announced that the entire 2021 NCAA tournament will be held in one geographical location. Norlander, you were on a media call with the NCAA's Dan Gavitt earlier this afternoon, so I'll let you handle the details. What did we learn about the NCAA tournament this afternoon? Biggest thing is that uh, normally the tournament has 13 sites right around the country. That's not going to happen in 2021, and that's a good thing. Um, we have talked about this on the podcast. We talked about it in August, uh, built around a, a, we had a three-part series actually that went up about how we should hold the season in general from the regular season all the way through the tournament. And one of those uh, columns that I wrote was a detail. <laughs> Listen, I, I handed the blueprint to the NCAA and they went with it. What do you want me to say here? They're going to go and try and do this in Indianapolis. That's not yet official. I think it is inevitable. Uh, they were Dan Gavitt, who's the NCAA senior vice president for basketball, made it clear on the Zoom call that uh, no decisions are made, but Indianapolis is their priority. And they have a list of other cities and regions. If Indy falls through, Indy is not going to fall through. This is going to be where it's done. What we don't yet know is everything else tied to it. So, and we can get into uh, some some speculation, um, some curiosities with this. But the big headline is that the NCAA tournament in 2021 is going to be one unlike any we've ever had before. But this was reinforcement nine days out from the start of the season that we are going to have a tournament. Now, when that tournament goes down, how it's going to be played, I want to get into that with you, GP. But the biggest thing is that the NCAA decided to do this, and it's been debating this for. I, what I believe at least two and a half months, uh, it has made the call. It sees where the virus is in this country and it finds it to be best to have this in a controlled environment uh, at a few different venues and a few different sites. I want to be particular with this part, piece of uh, terminology. The 2021 NCAA tournament will not be in a bubble. This is not the NBA situation. You will have different venues, different hotels. It is not a bubble. It is a controlled environment. It is the most realistic, practical thing the NCAA can do. There's no doubt about that. You cannot hold a bubble with 68 teams. Uh, the NBA did its best to, that it could with, uh, with about 20 of them. So that's an important distinction to be made. You'll probably hear people inevitably reference the fact that the 2021 NCAA tournament is going to be in a bubble. That's technically not accurate. It's going to be in a controlled environment. In and around greater Indianapolis, I think, is what we're going to wind up seeing come next March. So, obviously, Banker's life is, uh, you know, the centerpiece of, of the locations, I, I would assume. There's a, there's a dome there as, as well. Um, Butler is nearby. You had uh, recommended many months ago that they use all of these facilities that are within roughly an hour of each other. Do you get the sense that 
um, something like you recommended is actually going to be what they do? I do get that sense, but I do think... So here were the eight that I recommended. I don't think these will be the final eight. Banker's Life, Home of the Pacers, Hinkle, Home of Butler, Indiana Farmers Coliseum, which is where IUPUI is, right at D1 School, right in Indianapolis, Assembly Hall, an hour south of Indy, Mackey Arena, Purdue is 70 minutes northwest of Indy, the Holman Center, where Indiana State is, and Terry Haute, it's 70 minutes west of Indianapolis, and the final two are Ball State's Arena, which is Worthen Arena, that's an hour northeast of Indy, and then Southport High School is in the greater Indy metro area at 7,200 people. Now, I've learned a couple of things here. One, so, uh, there are multiple high schools that they could use here in theory if they wanted, but I did not know this until today, and I don't know if this is a fixable problem or not. Apparently, a number of these high schools, uh, the court is only 84 feet. It's not 94 feet. That's obviously a problem. I don't know if you can throw down an, an actual 94-foot court. I don't know. So that remains to be seen if the high schools can be used, but um, when this came out, there was a lot of, hey, no need to drive to Indiana State or Ball State or Fort Wayne, which isn't on my list, when you have four, five, six gyms within 20 minutes of, of the greater Indianapolis area, high school gyms, that seat 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 people. Keep that in mind. I also think there is the potential, although I don't know if this complicates it, Parrish, if you want to like say, you know what, we're going to put X amount of teams to play in Louisville, you know, it's close enough in theory to Indianapolis. It's all drivable, but you're in a different state. I don't know if stuff will be will get thorny if the the, the bureaucratic process will of all of this will be complicated. So I don't have an answer for that, but I do think that those venues will be considered. I saw Gottlieb tweet that he was told that Hinkle doesn't have enough locker rooms. Personally, if this thing is going to be in Indianapolis, I don't see how you don't use Hinkle, even if you only use it. Literally for, all right, you get one game there in the morning and one game at night. There's so many options that are on the table. It would be, frankly, seems stupid not to use Hinkle for all of this. You don't need to put eight teams in the same building. So I think they'll overcome that. One more thing, Paris, that Gavitt mentioned on the call that needs to be taken into account. Not just how many hotel rooms you're going to need. And he made, made it clear, like, they know how many hotel rooms are in, in Indianapolis and that this is certainly achievable. But teams need to be able to practice, and they're not going to be practicing where the games are being played. So for as many courts and arenas that you're going to need to have these games, you, as particularly for a 68-team field, which is their every intention of keeping this a 68-team tournament, the practice court availability will have to be far and wide. And I do think you are going to have situations here where NCAA tournament teams are using high school gyms all across Indianapolis and, and beyond to get their practices in. That logistical facet of it to me is going to be fascinating, but keep that in mind as well. This is more than just six or seven or eight arenas, Parish. This is upward of 30 or 40 basketball facilities that will need it to be used once the, uh, once the tournament gets going and even before the first game is played. A big picture, this is obviously smart. One of the things I've been saying, I guess, since March is that the NCAA should focus on simplifying the process, minimize risk, uh, reduce the number of obstacles, and create the simplest path possible while recognizing nothing simple, the simplest path possible to a 2021 NCAA tournament. Hold it, complete it, crown a champion, cash a check. And eliminating travel from one NCAA tournament site to another is undeniably an example of minimizing risk and reducing the number of obstacles. Now, um, because one of the things we've learned from college football is that uh, not every outbreak has been 
attributed to this, but several outbreaks have been attributed to travel. You know, when you get on planes and everybody's, you know, in a plane, when you get on a bus and everybody's in that bus, when you get to a hotel that is different from your normal environment, clearly at this point in this country, you can catch this virus even if you're being careful, even if you're not traveling. Um, I I flew home from Washington, D.C. on March 11th. I have not been on a plane since. Nobody in my family has been on a plane since. My wife tested positive for COVID-19 last week. Um, She is in isolation, fighting it as best she can. She has been a mask wearer. Um, We have had no parties. We've been to no gatherings. We haven't done any of the things that the health officials in this country tell people not to do, and yet she still could not avoid it. So clearly, this virus can get anybody at any time, regardless of the circumstances. But that doesn't mean if you're the NCAA, you shouldn't try to, again, not erase all risk, but minimize the risk and eliminating the need for these teams to get on a plane to go from the round of 32 to the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight to the Final Four. That is one way to minimize risk. I tip my hat to them. They are adapting in these unprecedented times, and this is a step in the right direction. You're absolutely right. I mean, this is, and to do it before the season starts is important. Um, they, they got out in front of this in advance of it, which I was not convinced was going to happen in terms of them deciding this and getting it public. Like, it, it, I, to see this on Monday, I wasn't anticipating it coming uh, when it did. Uh, love to do an emergency pod with you. And and this is a good thing. Now, a couple other items that I want to I, I want to get in, everything that our listeners need to know about what we know now and what got answered both in the press release and then on the media call because there's a lot here. First of all, the women's NCAA tournament is also a very big deal. Gavitt confirmed that you cannot hold the women's tournament in the same spot, the same location as the men's tournament. Obviously, the women's tournament, although it has not yet been officially decided that it's going to do what the men's tournament is going to do, we both know that is going to be inevitable. Lynn Holtzman, who's the vice president of women's basketball, uh, so the Dan Gavitt on the women's side, uh, put out a statement shortly before we started podcasting and said, quote, the women's basketball committee is continuing its ongoing discussions to determine next steps for the women's basketball basketball tournament with the primary focus of these discussions on being the safety and well-being of student athletes, coaches, and others involved in hosting and conducting an NCAA championship. Uh, Where that is going to be remains to be seen. The women's final four is scheduled to be in San Antonio, so it would make sense if they don't want to move that final four site. These final four sites for the men and women are huge deals. Maybe they try and do it around San Antonio or greater Texas. You get it done in Austin. You get it done in San Antonio. You get it done in Dallas. Keep an eye on that from the women's side. Dan Gavitt did reinforce that they are going to try for a 68-team field. I uh, probed him quite a bit on how flexible or how inevitable do you think it is that the NCAA tournament is going to get pushed back into April um, and and we're going to, you know, just give a, more of a buffer to get more games in. I referenced the fact that Rick Pitino over the weekend tweeted that the season start should be pushed to January and have the tournament in May. I disagree with Pitino that the season start should be pushed back, and um, and Gavitt does as well. But Gavitt even said he didn't think it was inevitable that the tournament would get pushed back into April. Um, well, let's just let's just veer right into this talking point, GP, because I want your thoughts, and then we'll we'll wrap back around and get some other details about what's happening here. I think that we are going to get to the week before Christmas. We're going to look up and we're going to see dozens, if not hundreds, of teams have failed to get in even five games to that point. And once we are there, the NCAA and its selection committee are going to have to make a decision as to are they going to be comfortable with a season in where teams play ten games, twelve games, thirteen games, and that's just simply going to be enough, and they want to keep the tournament in March. March and going into April and keep it as is? Or do you want to give teams 
more of a fair shake with this season. Build in another three to four weeks to play games so that your average team in college basketball, instead of maybe playing 10 games, plays 14. That does make a difference when you're trying to select and seed teams because I promise you, uh, no one's really thinking about this right now. But if we get to March 11th and the tournament is still going off as is, and just let's go with a hypothetical, we're looking at, you know, we'll look at Clemson. You know, they're they're a seven and three team. It's going to be super weird to try and evaluate a seven and three team against a team that might have been fortunate enough to play 17 games and is 11 and six. So they don't want to push it back. They're willing to do it, but that's definitely not in the plans. I think they should. And I think that they will. Parrish, where do you do you disagree with me? Do you think that we should target taking into consideration that TV will have a say in this as well, but they're going to want a tournament as opposed to no tournament? Like they'd rather have a 68 team tournament start on April 20 than a 32 team tournament start on March 20, right? Where do you fall in line on right now what the NCAA should be planning to do to start a tournament? Well, I, I'm happy to not change the dates on November 16th. Like, I don't think that that's necessarily a decision that has to be made today. I do think it would be smart to remain flexible. Uh, You don't push back just to push back, but uh, there's two reasons that maybe you should. One is the one you um, bring up, which is it's possible we get to March and some teams just have barely played uh, and and they're obviously good teams. Like nobody's going to cry for Clemson, but change Clemson into Kentucky. Yeah, I wanted to pick a random team, but you're absolutely right, yeah. Yeah, what are we going to do when, when if Duke is sitting there with 11 games under its belt heading into Selection Sunday? We really going to talk about, uh, well, you know, I don't know if they played enough. Like, it's Duke. We're going to put them in the NCAA tournament. And I know that I believe Dan said earlier today um, that the, the, the original idea was that you got to at least play 13 to qualify for the NCAA tournament. There will be a waiver process Mm-hmm. for teams that if you don't get to 13, you can apply for a waiver. So awesome news. We got more waivers with the NCAA, just what we needed. <laughs> yeah. And I, by the way, when it comes to that, I think that the waiver process, the teams are uh, blindly projecting that they're going to be cleared on that. But that's the waiver process is necessary because there was a rule in place that in order to qualify for the 21 tournament, you need 13 outcomes. Now that again, that's the initial thing. And I don't disagree that we don't need to make a decision today, but I was hoping to get more out of Gavin and Mitch Barnhart, the chair and say, listen, Do you guys think that you're like the same way that three months ago we thought we were heading in this exact direction of putting the tournament in one site? Do you feel like you're heading in the same direction where a month from today, six weeks from today, you're going to say, you know what? It would be better to extend the season to give us more room on the back end and play it there. And and a couple other reasons why, Parrish. One of them being legitimate news that broke this morning where Moderna is yet another company that has released an even better uh, success rate, close to 94% on its vaccine. I do think that there is a chance that the reality of our everyday life in this country, when in terms of getting the public vaccinated on April 20th versus March 5th, it could be a huge difference well, there. And if it, we're going into the spring, we're coming out of the winter, if they don't move the tournament and they remain steadfast on this, I think they could wind up looking foolish if we're looking two weeks out at starting the tournament and the country has been able to finally, like, finally find real footing and all of the elderly, all of the first responders, all of the people that need to get vaccinated to have, and then the public is slowly but surely getting vaccinated, and you look up and you say, 
well, just from a health and safety standpoint, man, it would be just it would probably be just better if we if we started this thing in April and ended it the first week of May as opposed to trying to squeeze it in and end it in the first week of April. Well, so when I mentioned there's two reasons, two obvious reasons to maybe push the NCAA tournament back. One is, as we've discussed, it, it gives a bigger window to play more games. The second is from a vaccine perspective. You know, Dr. Anthony Fauci said last week that he believes it's possible not definite, but possible that a vaccine could be widely readily available for all Americans who want it by April. You know, the vaccine is going to be available in, in theory reportedly for our most vulnerable next month. But so, so my family's not going to be able to get the vaccine next month. Nobody believes that's a reality, but could my family get the vaccine in April? Dr. Fauci seems to think that's possible. So there could be a massive difference between trying to play a tournament in March yeah. than, than trying to play it in April or May. I mean, it, it, it really could be the difference, and I, I don't want to play amateur epidemiologist here, but is there a scenario where you can't have fans or you have very few fans in March, but in May – you could have lots of fans, maybe even fill up an arena again. Again, I'm not sure, but if a vaccine is widely available in this country in April, that is a game changer for this country, and it could theoretically be a game changer for the NCAA tournament if it were pushed back. And to be fair to Gavitt and the committee, they clearly made this decision late last week. They got all the particulars settled about the release that got released on Monday. They didn't know this uh, announcement was coming from Moderna, and, and not that that would have changed what they would have said today, but this is the, the science is evolving by the day with this, and I do think that... By the way, it makes it makes a difference. Uh, the returns at the gate are significant in an NCAA tournament. I don't think we're ever going to have a situation in 2021 with a tournament that we're going to have a, an arena full of fans. But if you are able to implement some sort of system where you can uh, provide documentation that you've been vaccinated and you want to purchase a ticket, and if we held it theoretically in May, like that's not out of the realm of possibility, okay? But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. They did uh, get asked on the call whether or not fans would be allowed. That's obviously a to be determined. Um, it's at, Right now, it's not tracking that the answer would be yes, but we will wait and see when we get there. Um, didn't have any clarity on whether or not Lucas Oil Stadium would or would not be used. I would say they shouldn't use it. It just uh, if you're not going to have fans and you can't fill it up with just playing basketball venues, I think that's absolutely what should be happening there. A couple other items that I find intriguing about this. Uh, got confirmation. This kind of goes to, you know logically, but I wanted to get uh, Gavin on the record about this. When we have selection Sunday, which by the way, like that's still we don't have a definite selection Sunday date set in stone. We we will know this by December, they said. We're going to know the date, the sites for the tournament and a lot of details about the tournament before New Year's Eve. So whenever Selection Sunday is, you you know that you're in the tournament, okay? Well, it's not going to be like it's always been. The first four is not going to be two nights later in Dayton, Ohio. The first four will be somewhere in greater Indianapolis, and it's going to be a certain amount of days because what's going to have to happen is all of these teams are going to need to produce negative tests. Obviously, they're going to want to have a field that is filled with healthy teams and and the integrity of the competition is safe. So the best way to do that, the only way to do that really, is to make sure that your teams quarantine upon arrival at the tournament. So however they're going to pull that off, my blind expectation, this is this is a blind expectation. We'll come back and, and revisit it. I think it's going to be about a 10-day wait, maybe, uh, maybe uh, 11 days between Selection Sunday and the following Wednesday or Thursday when we actually start the tournament. Now, if you're thinking, okay, well, then that means that pushes the tournament back. Yes, it does, 
And although we didn't have an answer on this today, what I actually think is going to wind up happening, though, is you won't have tra- – remember, you will not have travel. And I, and I laid this out over the summer in my story. What will wind up happening is you will then condense the tournament calendar. So it's going to take longer to start the tournament from Selection Sunday, but you will then have – the first round and the second round be separated likely by two days as always. But then the second round of the Sweet 16, instead of waiting four days, you might wait only two or three. And the same thing with the Elite Eight. And then when you get to the Final Four, it's not going to be a five, six-day wait GP. It might be two or three days because they want to get the tournament done in an efficient way. And when teams aren't traveling, they're going to try and strike that balance. So keep an eye on that. And one more thing. I did ask about the TV windows because when I tweeted this out on Monday, I had a few people mention... Does this mean, and I don't know if they were hopeful or 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 sarcastic about it, but does this mean we're not going to get like, you know, a couple of games ending at midnight? Because there is a certain kind of charm to the West Coast game finishing at like 12.07 on a Thursday night and kind of wrapping up a full day. Well, now it's all going to be in Indianapolis. You're not going to have this disparate geography. Gavitt was um, careful to point out that the changeover between these games is going to, you're going to have a lot of COVID protocols, cleaning, you know, what locker rooms you're in, how teams are exiting and going. It's not going to be 20 to 25 or 30 minutes between games. It'll probably be closer to an hour between games. That means that if you're going to try and ideally have four games at one site, inevitably, I think you're going to have morning tips for the tournament on that Thursday and Friday, which I just think is cool. You might also wind up having to space the first round out beyond two days. It might take three, it might take four, because one venue for COVID protocols might not be able to handle more than three games in a single day. Again, we're going to get more details on that going forward, but a pretty big announcement today, and we're getting at least some some indications of what uh, this NCAA tournament is going to look like. I'm pretty positive about it because I, I got to be honest, as we talk about this GP, you know, more than 30 teams are on COVID pause right now. There's going to be minimum 20 games scheduled for the 25th and 26th of this month that I think will not get played. We're going to see just an endless wave of cancellations and it's going to bring a lot of uh, pessimism. And I understand that, but we're going to have a season. It's going to be really fractured, uh, but we are still going to have a tournament. I mean, they basically don't have a choice here, so they're going to hold it one way or another. And today was a big official step in kind of, of, of moving the ball down the field to getting closer to that point. So if I've got you right, uh, the NCAA tournament, uh, forget the first four for a second. Uh, the, yeah. the main bracket starts, you know, uh, traditionally on Thursday, Friday, we get those first round games all day long. Then round of 32 on Saturday, Sunday, Sweet 16 on the following Thursday, Friday. Now it could go first round Thursday, Friday, round of 32, Saturday, Sunday, Sweet 16, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, Elite Eight, Thursday, Friday. I mean, we could really do something like that, although from a television perspective, and I'll let smarter people like my bosses figure this stuff out, you know, is it important to have those Saturday, Sunday television windows? Um, Will will television say, we don't care that you don't need time to travel. We know the NCAA tournament works on these specific days. We want them on these days. There, I think there might be some of that, but I've but Gavitt told me over the uh, you know the late summer that they're they've obviously been in contact with CBS and Turner, and the amount of understanding and flexibility has been tremendous. And I think the tournament is such a huge event that 
while these windows, obviously, they are baked into our expectation, they are going to be able to mutate. And you mentioned, like, again, just to be clear, this is my expectation. I could be wrong about this because it's going to have to be one of two things with the first round. It could be three or four days worth of first round games because if it's not, given how much time it's going to take to change over and figuring out where these games are going to be on TV. If you're going to get the first round in, in two days, you will need more than eight venues in my opinion to get it done. Now, maybe they will have more than eight venues and they're going to go as far down as Louisville up to Indiana. Again, use a high school gym. Those are the details that I'm most intrigued with, but yes, I do expect that when we are talking about this tournament and, and I really, really hope that we're, we're able to, to be there to cover it in person and experience it. But for everyone listening that may not have a chance to, to actually be in Indiana and Indianapolis for this, I think the viewing experience from this is going to obviously be unique, but unique in a really cool way. Like I just expect, particularly for those first two rounds when everyone's just it's a frenzy. Like we're not just gonna have this the typical like twelve fifteen, two thirty, seven o'clock, nine thirty. I think because of what's gonna have to happen again on the ground teams getting in and out of these smaller venues, we're just going to have a one o'clock tip, a two o'clock tip, a three o'clock, a four. Like it's just going to be all over the place. And I think that's going to make for a very fun viewing experience. I don't know if we'll have the TV stuff figured out by the end of December GP, but I do know we will have the sites figured out and a lot of the, you know, logistics about travel. And that was one other thing. Dana O'Neill brought this up on the call. Just, she wanted to make it perfectly clear. It kind of goes without saying, but again, it's, it's good to get official word from, from the NCAA on this. If you're a Baylor or a Gonzaga and you've lived up to your reputation here, uh, you will be getting on a flight with the mindset of you're going to be on the road for three and a half, four weeks. And you know, there will, there will probably be some, you know, like, Oh, NCAA hypocrisy, like, Let's be real here. These players are going to be doing remote learning uh, all throughout the season. And so um, that factor will be fascinating to see how amateur athletes uh, thrive or don't in that kind of environment. They, they aren't, you know, that is unusual. So if you are going to win a national title, it's going to require you to live out of a hotel in, in this quarantine kind of lifestyle for easily the better part of three weeks. And so um, whether or not that winds up playing a factor in who ultimately wins it, that'll be something we can talk about down the road. But just to be clear, you can't leave once you get there. Like once you're there, you are there until you get knocked out of the tournament. To your point about, you know, everybody being flexible, you know, the entities plus the television networks, you know, we usually watch the masters in April, it wraps up late Sunday afternoon leads straight into 60 minutes. Uh, we just got through watching the masters, um, wrap up early afternoon in November so that CBS could go straight from the final round to a late afternoon NFL game. So there's a situation where everybody was flexible. Uh, my assumption is that when it comes to this NCAA tournament, you will see similar flexibility executed. Uh, I would think so as well. I mean, and I think that's going to be one of the biggest things that we have to, to keep in mind here going forward, because again, we're talking about the end of the season and the road to get there between uh, now and then it's, it's definitely going to be bumpy. I mean, who knows what we're going to be talking about later this week or next week, just in terms of, of games, teams like Verm just as again, Ivy League, we didn't even talk about this on the podcast yet. The Ivy League is not playing college basketball this season. I don't know if that's going to be the only conference that does or doesn't do that, but because of that, and we want to have a 68-team field, there's going to now be 37 at-large bids, theoretically. I say they should go to 64 for one year, but whatever. That's a whole deal altogether. UVM, Vermont, announced on Sunday 
it's not playing college basketball at all until December 18th. And they've made that decision. I don't think that it's going to be the only one. I think Alabama State also has made this decision. We could get others with that. The point I'm bringing up here is that it's going to be a rocky ride. And just because that's going to be the case, it's not going to affect whether or not there's going to be a tournament. There is going to be a tournament. They're hell-bent on having a minimum of 64 teams. The biggest question to me is like, okay, but wouldn't you rather do it when the weather gets warmer, we have a month's more worth of games, we have a month's more worth of vaccine dissemination, and you can just pull it off. You know, it just it just seems, plus the NBA playoffs, which normally butt up against it, they're going to be pushed back. The finals are not going to wrap until July, so I don't even think there's a lot of cross-pollination there. Turner obviously broadcasts that. That stuff needs to be figured out, um, and we'll wait to see on it. But hey, legitimately big news and good news for college on a Monday. This comes at a time when college football, which only has a four-team playoff, is still trying to figure out uh, what it can or will or won't do. Like It hasn't made decisions, I feel, that are as definitive to this point that what college basketball has done. So it's, it's, a, it's a tip of the cap to Gavin and that committee for making decisions that are not easy, um, and hopefully we have more clarity, really, I hope, by Christmas. Yeah, and I would bet a significant amount of money that this will not be the last big announcement we have as it relates to how this college basketball season is going to unfold. Obviously, you know, the numbers in this country are trending in uh, the wrong direction and everything is it's been complicated for a while. It seems to be getting more complicated and everybody's best guess, at least smart people, is that things are going to get even more complicated with this virus in this country. Um, as we uh, exit November, head into December. It's one of the reasons uh, uh, countless universities uh, are sending students home for Thanksgiving and not bringing them back until deep into January. Um, However bumpy you think the past eight months have been, it is almost certainly about to get bumpier. So uh, wish us all luck, college basketball included. Shouts to Devin Downey, shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry, MF and Teagle, legend. Shouts to Larnell. Thank you guys for once again listening to the Island College Basketball Podcast in the middle of the dumbest pandemic of my lifetime. If you enjoy it, tell somebody about it. Please, if you haven't subscribed, go subscribe anywhere you subscribe to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts. We'd appreciate it. And either way, we're going to talk to you again on Tuesday when we jump back into our series of profiling the top 10 teams in my CBS Sports Top 25 and 1. We've already done six, four more to go. Next up on Tuesday, a preview focused on number four, Virginia. So we'll talk to you then. Till then, take care.